give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The sixth chapter of John begins with a sign and in a series of signs that illustrate how one is saved through the word of God, by faith in God, through grace alone. The sign is the feeding of the 5,000 in verses 1 through 14, illustrating that salvation satisfies the inner longings, the persistent hunger in the hearts of human beings. Next, Jesus stills the storm in verses 15 through 21, illustrating that salvation brings peace. The signs are followed by a sermon In verses 22 through 65, where Jesus reveals his person, he's the bread of life, verses 32 through 40. Next, Jesus reveals the process of salvation in verses 43 through 52, that he's the power of salvation in verses 53 through 65. And then the chapter comes to a dramatic close with a deep division, a wide separation and sifting. Where the word of God reveals the son of God and the son of God confronts us with the truth about God. And then there's a group of people who embrace the truth. And then there's a group of people who reject the truth. The crowd craving bread for the body winds up rejecting the bread for the soul. And so in this section of scripture, Jesus will address his critics. And as he addresses the critics, he will offer correction. These are answers to his critics. And in so doing, Jesus reminds the listener of the process of of salvation. You've got to understand that the Jews were quick to dismiss the signs and then reject the claims of Jesus. And what was their reason for rejecting his claims? Well, they judge things naturally instead of spiritually. They judge things naturally instead of supernaturally. They used human values and human reasoning instead of God's standards and God's revelation. Imagine you receive a plain envelope simply addressed to you with no return address. It comes in a stack of mail. And as you're going through the mail, you automatically assume what you what it typically is, is junk mail. And you tear it up and you throw it in the trash and inside is a check for a million dollars. From Bill Gates. And it's really his check and it's really drawn on his account and it's really his signature. Would you feel a little queasy? No, you really wouldn't because you had no idea that it was there to begin with because you didn't bother to look inside. That's part of the challenge that the religious leaders, they're judging on the external, they're judging on the package. Jesus seems to be an ordinary Jew living among ordinary Jewish people with an ordinary mother and an ordinary father. And look what happens when critics ask. Look at verse 41. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. Again, quickly, who are the critics? The religious leaders, the Jews. Why are they complaining? 
It's because of Jesus' outrageous claims. And what are the outrageous claims? I am the bread which came down from heaven. Now, again, think carefully for just a moment. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven? Minimum, he is making a claim of having a supernatural origin. He's claiming that he's not from around these parts. That there is something extraordinary about him, extraordinary about his source, extraordinary about his mission. His mission. Do the Jews see it that way? Do they do they understand that Jesus is making an extraordinary claim about himself? Of course they do. That's why they're arguing. That's why they're murmuring. That's why they're complaining. They're in effect saying this is nonsense. And it is nonsense. Unless it's true. Unless it's true. And that's the key. Unless it's true, it certainly doesn't make sense. A critic, by the way, is anyone who presents a reasoned opinion or argument on any matter, especially involving a judgment of its value or truth or righteousness or beauty or technique. The Bible isn't against critics. The Bible isn't against reasoning. The Bible isn't against a person who confronts error with truth. That's not the problem. The Jews are arguing with each other. And they're, argue, they're arguing with each other and they're eager to let everyone know their thoughts on this matter. But they're reluctant to bring the claims before the revelation of the Torah and the word of God. Does anyone care about what God thinks about this? And by the way, in the New Testament, you're going to see over and over again the most extraordinary claims being made and done. As a matter of fact, as you make your way through the New Testament and you come to that place in the Bible where Jesus rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven and Peter gets up and he preaches before thousands of people and thousands respond to the message of hope. And you'll remember as you proceed in the book of Acts, there's a a particular time when Peter and John are walking to the temple and they come to the gate beautiful. And there stands a man who has been lame for many, many years. He's over the age of 40. 40, Peter looks at him directly in the eye and he says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he does. He gets up, he gets up and he starts leaping and praising the Lord. And as he's leaping and praising the Lord, it gives an opportunity for Peter once again to present the claims of Christ that it is Jesus who has done this. It's Jesus who's wrought this miracle. It's Jesus who's made this person whole. And thousands more respond to Jesus. And the religious leaders say, hey, we can't dispute the fact that a notable miracle has taken place. We can't deny what's happened right before our eyes. But we're going to tell you right here and now, you can't talk about Jesus, you can't preach in Jesus' name, and you can't say what you're saying. It never occurred to them that their other option was to actually believe and embrace what Peter had said. Look again. It seems not that significant, but I want you to read it again then. In verse 41, the Jews then... Complain. The, the word complained is gongudzo. It'll be important in just a few moments. Unbelief is not the cause of sin. 
Sin is the cause of unbelief. Many modern unbelievers will concede the fact that the New Testament paints a picture of Jesus in supernatural terms. The portrait given in the New Testament by the gospel writers presents Jesus as being a person with supernatural origins, supernatural abilities, power and authority over all things. Matthew's gospel says now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child by the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. But the religious leaders, the Jews, they, they don't believe that. All the gospel agree that Jesus rose from the dead. But the critics complain. The critics' complaint is the text can't be trusted. The critics complain that science is uncovering a different Jesus in other documents, documents that speak about Jesus, documents excluded from the Bible. Critics complain that the Bible's representation of Jesus can't be trusted. The critics complain that Christianity's core beliefs were copied from the ancient pagans. The Christ the critics complain that Jesus is a fraud and an imposter who failed to fulfill messianic prophecies. The critics complain that Jesus is just simply a human being. Maybe an, an, an incredible person, maybe a, an extraordinary person, but, but simply a person. And that's exactly what's happening in verse 42. The religious leaders, the Jews, say, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? They question the origin of Jesus. Look, you're a human with human parents. Look, Jesus, you're the young man from Nazareth. We've seen you grow up. We watched you work with your father. We saw you come to the market in Sepphoris. We saw you come to the synagogue in Capernaum. We've seen you. You're just a regular kid from, from the neighborhood. How can you say that you came down from heaven? Well, how could he possibly make such an outrageous claim? The answer, in part, remember, is they're ignorant of the Incarnation. People are willing to listen to Jesus, but sometimes they fail to learn from Jesus. By the way, there's a lot of different ways to listen. And some of you are listening in different ways here this morning. Some of you listen critically. Some of you listen with anger. Some of you listen with resentment. Some of you listen with superiority, with apathy, with indifference. There's different kinds of listening. You're listening, but your mind and your heart is elsewhere. You're thinking about the afternoon dinner with mom. And that's okay. And I am too. Tri-tip with... Uh, Oh, what is that? Pico de gallo, maybe. Yes. It's hard. One of the keys to talking with critics is not to tell them how to think or tell them what to think. It's to tell them how to think. You see, you won't get anywhere with your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. You won't get anywhere with your children. You won't get anywhere with your unbelieving neighbors. You won't get anywhere with your friends and family by telling them what to think. You've got to tell them how to think. You've got to help them. Very few people want to think for themselves. 
And so we have to help people learn how to research for themselves and find out for themselves what the Bible says, what the answers are in the Bible to their questions about God and the nature of God, the mission of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the meaning of the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and to find for themselves answers, answers that are in the Bible. We should consider the critics' arguments. Christians and Christianities embrace this reason. We're we're not anti-intellectual. We are the people who believe that the application of logic to philosophical arguments is important, but we also embrace the revelation of God that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. We understand the limitations of logic and the limitations of reason. Reason cannot tell you everything that you need to know. But revelation can. And so Jesus declares himself to have a divine origin, a supernatural origin. He comes from heaven and not the earth. And by the way, remember, the second criticism is rooted in the assertion that Jesus is simply a human being, an ordinary man, an ordinary person with ordinary parents. The Jews, the religious leaders protest, we know you. We know your parents. By the way, Joseph was the legal father of Jesus. But what's the truth? What is the truth surrounding the birth of Jesus? The scriptures predicted the Messiah would be born of a woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. From the tribe of Judah in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8. A king in the line of David, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. He would be born of a virgin. That's what the prophet says in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he would be a firstborn son, sanctified according to Exodus chapter 13, verse 2. But you have to look. You have to be willing to look. Hannah Rosen writes in the Washington Post, quote, Americans write their own Bible. They fashion their own God. And then they talk incessantly about him. People talk not based on what the Bible has to say, but what they believe is the only possibility. The critic might even ask the question, well, shouldn't people be free to believe any Jesus that they want? If the Mormons want to believe that he's the spirit brother of Lucifer, who cares? If the Jehovah's Witnesses want to believe that he's the archangel Michael, who cares? If the Hindus want to believe that he's an ascended master, who cares? Some people believe that religion is just an excuse to judge other people. Some people, some critics will say, okay, look, I believe everybody's belief system is uh, right for them. Unless, of course, you're Hitler. Then that's just clearly wrong. Genocide is just clearly wrong. Or the guy in New Mexico who thinks he's Jesus. I don't know if you guys have been watching National Geographic, but there's a a man who's a part of a cult called the Strong City Cult. And this man in northern New Mexico claims that he's the Messiah with glasses and bad teeth. I I actually expect Jesus not to have glasses and bad teeth. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just seeing this all wrong. But the man who claims to be the Messiah in New Mexico also gives himself permission to sleep naked with his followers. 
even if they're underage? And you might be thinking, he's a nut. Okay, you can believe whatever you want, except if or if you're Hitler, except for if you're a nut job, except if you're a pedophile, but otherwise you're pretty much free to believe whatever you want. But you don't use the same standard to evaluate yourself, do you? At home, at school, on the job. Do you feel comfortable with people believing whatever they want about you? They can just make up stuff in their mind and whatever they believe is just fine with you. What are the risks for those who reject the truth and what are the risks of unbelief? Well, the unbeliever runs the risk that God may judicially harden their hearts for the religious leaders. Jesus in the future will communicate in parables. Uh, A parable is a teaching tool that's meant to both reveal and conceal. Jesus was asked the question by his own disciples in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. Why do you speak to people in parables? And Jesus certainly is going to answer based on a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, the prophet Isaiah said, Make the heart of this people dull, make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. When Jesus answers the question in Matthew chapter 13, verses 11 through 15, it says this. He answers and says to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given for whoever has to him more will be given and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says hearing you will hear and shout not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's Jehovah who calls for the children of Israel to return to him and be made whole. Jesus says, I want you to return to me and be made whole. So how do you address the critic who insists? I need more miracles. I need more evidence. I I need more proof. Your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your family member, your friend, your neighbor, the person who says to you, I I just don't see it. I don't just I I don't see what you're saying. I don't get it. I, I can't hear what you're saying. I know. Clearly, you don't. You you don't see and you don't hear. Because your heart's hardened. As a matter of fact, later on in John chapter 12, verse 37, if you fast forward just a few chapters in our gospel, in John chapter 12, verse 37, Jesus says, but although he had done so many signs before them, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. 
that the word of Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. You know, it isn't evidence that people really want. People really want an excuse to continue in their deafness, to continue in their blindness, to continue in their hardness. And note how Jesus offers a correction in verse 43. You'll notice that he doesn't quote Matthew and he doesn't quote Isaiah until later, but he will quote them. Jesus offers this correction. Look what Jesus says to the to the. Murmuring and the complaining about his outrageous claims, Jesus answered and said, don't murmur among yourselves in verse 43. Jesus basically says, stop complaining. Stop murmuring. Have you ever had a mother say to you, just shut up. Now, moms don't typically go, just shut up. Unless they're overwhelmed with so much noise. It's because the mother needs you to listen. The the mother needs you to stop because the mother understands you can't receive instruction unless you shut up. And so Jesus says, stop murmuring or complaining. By the way, the verb translated murmur is the Greek word The word is very interesting. It's what linguists call onomatopoetic. Some of you are familiar with onomatopoeia. It's a poetic expression that says that the sound suggests the sense. We have that word in our language. Um, We use it when we describe that bees buzz. Buzzes poetic. Snakes hiss. See, they make the kind of sound. We, we, we say bees buzz and snakes hiss. And here, murmur is gong. In our culture, we think of murmuring as grumbling or complaining with a very small voice. Imagine, okay, now this, I'm giving you permission to talk in church for just a moment. Just quietly whisper to the person next to you, just sort of, just loud enough for the neighbors to hear, that guy's nuts, that guy's nuts, what's he talking about? Yeah, guy, he's nuts, I mean, what is this, this stuff, he's coming from heaven and, I mean, 1,900 years to go before we invent medication that will make these visions go away. He's nuts. He's crazy. But that's not what's being said here. It's gong. It's loud. These are critics who are loud. And they're combative. By the way, we're not called to be combative. Rather, we're admonished to answer the critic, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, with gentleness and with respect. Because gentleness and love in the midst of hostility redirects the tone. It becomes a silent but powerful witness. And that's why the most effective mother isn't the mother who screams, Shut up! 
The most effective mother is the one who says, I, I need you. I need you to be quiet. I need you to put on your little closed mouth face. I need you to exercise the use of both of these ears. I need you to be quiet just for a moment. And look how Jesus answers the criticism in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Now think carefully for just a moment. How are we to understand Jesus' words? Read them again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. One of the key words in the, in the sentence is, is the word draws. It's the Greek word helupian. It, it's a word that is translated in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, it says, The Lord, Jehovah, has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. Same word. As a matter of fact, the word implies the kind of resistance. The Lord has appeared. You've loved me. You've drawn me with love. There is a, there's, a, there's a kind of implied resistance. The word is used to describe dragging a heavy net, net filled with fish to the shore. In John chapter 21, verses 6 and 11, after Jesus has risen from the dead and, the, and Peter and James and John go fishing in the Galilee and they're casting their nets and they've been fishing all night and they can't find anything. And finally, in frustration, they start to make it home and they see a guy frying fish on the shore. And he says, throw the net on the other side and the net becomes filled with fish and they begin to drag the heavy net filled with fish to the shore. The dragging is the same word, draw. It's used of Paul and Silas when they were dragged before the magistrates in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, verse 19, where they beat him and arrested him and enchained him and then drug him into the prison. It's the same word used in John chapter 18, verse 10, when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is praying and the religious leaders and the soldiers show up and Peter draws his sword and Jesus says, put away your sword. Do you know what the dragging has in all of those illustrations, whether it's a net being dragged ashore or Paul and Silas being dragged before the magistrates or John 18, where the sword is dragged out of its sheath? All of it implies resistance. God draws. Man resists God's pool. He's asking and answering the question, who can come to the Father? Who can come to the Son? Who can come to the Father? Who can come to the Son? It's the one that the Father draws. C.S. Lewis described this process of him reluctantly being dragged into the kingdom, kicking and screaming. Oddly enough, one of the ways that you know that the Father is drawing is People who resist the drawing of the Father. When someone says to you, you you're nuts. You're crazy. You Christians, you make me crazy. Who 
Here's what you can say. Ooh, you're close. It's like a person who steps on a nail and as they stepped on the nail and they're screaming because of the pain of the nail and you come to them and you take that nail right out of their foot and they go, ah! You know they're close. You see, we tend to think of resistance and opposition as being something that the Father isn't drawing. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. That the Jews are resisting the drawing of the Father. The Bible says that we're helpless. We're utterly unable to respond to Jesus unless the Father draws. Unbelievers are unable to come to Christ on their own initiative. Here Jesus affirms the fact that God the Father draws the sinner. Because the Bible paints a bleak picture of fallen human beings. The unbeliever, the unregenerate is described as dead in trespasses and sins in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. In Colossians chapter 2 13. Hostile to God. Romans chapter 5 verse 10. Romans chapter 8 verse 7. People will say to me I'm so mad at God! And I'll say I know. That's evidence of your unregenerate Condition. It's an indicator of your spiritual heart. Ah, you can't say that. No, I just did. Ooh, you're just this close. You're just this close to having a right relationship with God. The unbeliever is described as spiritually blind in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Captive in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. Trapped in Satan's kingdom in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Trapped, blind, dead. That's the description that the New Testament gives. The make-believer is like the illegal alien who attempts to sneak across salvation's border with pretend citizenship. Sinners can't come to Christ simply of their own free will, but yet the will is involved. And since no one is saved apart from believing the gospel, who can come to Christ? The one who is drawn by the Father. The Lord's part in salvation is to draw you. He draws you. And as you are drawn to the gospel, guess what? Because you're an unregenerate sinner, you resist. You kick and you scream. And look what else Jesus says. It is written in the prophets. And they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus uses the scripture. He quotes the scripture. Now, again, when you're talking with your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your family member, your friend, and you quote the scripture, they go, oh, stop. No quoting the scripture. I don't even believe the Bible. And that's when you say, I know you're so stinking close. But the truth is, no matter what I say, it will have no value whatsoever. Because guess what? Jesus said, my words are life. Gino's words has no life. But God's word has life. 
The teaching may come from the voice of the preacher. It may come from nature. It may come from the reading of the Bible. It could come from any number of sources. But the message contains key elements. Man's need for God. The problem of sin. The need for Jesus to nourish and give life. As a matter of fact, Jesus is paraphrasing Isaiah chapter 54 verse 13 where it says, All your children shall be taught by Jehovah by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Do you know what he's saying? That the father has taught the son and the son is instructing them. As a matter of fact, those who come to a saving faith do so because they are supernaturally drawn by the Father and they are supernaturally instructed by the Son. The Father draws. The Son instructs. The Holy Spirit convicts, confirms, regenerates the sinner, indwells the sinner who becomes the saint. The truth of the word of God drawing people to embrace the son and the net result, the father draws people to embrace the son. The spirit points people to the son to receive the son. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 16, verse 8 Remember, the the people are drawn by the Holy Spirit. They're convicted by the Holy Spirit. They're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit attracts people to the cross of Christ and its glorious provision in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Then Paul, writing to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 18, says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. Oh, no. Oh, oh no. Are you going to tell me the same thing you always say about Jesus living and dying on the cross for my sins and rising from the dead? How dying on that cross creates a mechanism of forgiveness and peace and reconciliation? Uh, yeah. And look what it says in verse 46. Look what Jesus says. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Who's seen the Father? No one, except the Son. The Son is the one who is from God. Later, Jesus will say everyone else is a thief and a robber and a fraud. You'll note that Jesus doesn't use this simply as a theological expression so that you will know some great theological fact about God, that God is invisible and to a certain extent unknowable, unseen and unknown by everyone except the Son. In this context, not that anyone has seen the Father. Note how quickly Jesus adds it, because what the religious leaders and the Jews are thinking in their mind is, when did the Father show up and tell me about salvation and tell me about the Son? That's really the point of the passage. Not that anyone has seen the Father. Well, when did God show up? Have you ever had a family member or a friend or maybe you yourself have said at some point in your life, God, if you would show up, if you would just reveal yourself to me and and just confirm to me that the Bible is true and the message is true and all of this stuff is true, then I'll believe you. If you just show up. 
Jesus says that the Father has shown up. When the Son has shown up. When the message has shown up. Jesus was in heaven with the Father from all eternity. Jesus can speak with authority concerning the word of God and the will of God. Who else can make that claim? Did anyone else come from the Father? No, no one. Only the Son is qualified to speak firsthand about the Father. Only the Son can accurately and authentically communicate the expectation of the Father and the truth about salvation. No wonder John will later write in his little epistle of 1 John, He who has the Son has the Father. But he who does not have the Son does not have the Father. And look what it says in verse 47. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. There's that expression again. Most assuredly, verily, verily, truly, truly. We've gone over it so many times. Do you remember what it means? What I'm about to say is absolutely true. Charles Stanley is fond of saying, Now listen up, because what I'm about to say is important. When he says that, he's drawing the listener to pay close attention. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's drawing you to pay close attention. And he repeats it. He who believes in me has everlasting life. That's an outlandish claim. From an ordinary Jew with ordinary parents who grew up in an ordinary circumstance. See, if it came from any other famous figure, you would realize just how absurd it sounds. Imagine a former famous president said, if you believe in me, I'll give you everlasting life. And you see, you laugh because you go, that's so wrong. You can't say that. What gives Jesus the right to say that? Because he's communicating the expectation of the Father and the truth about salvation and that it lies in him. Believing the message of Jesus means believing that Jesus connects us with the Father and believing in Jesus connects us with the Father and gives us eternal life. And eternal life is the present possession of everyone who believes and the future possession of everyone who believes. We can live forever because Jesus lives forever in the presence of the Father. No wonder in John 17, he prays this prayer as you have given him, speaking of himself, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you and the only begotten son you're the only and Jesus Christ whom you have sent and then he says I'm the bread of life in verse 48 he's the sustenance and then note what he says in verse 49 your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead do you know what he's saying he's not claiming to be the manna He's not even claiming to be equal with the manna. He's claiming to be superior to the manna. As a matter of fact, the manna was a mysterious thing to the Jew. Did you know that in the Hebrew language what the word manna means? Ma'anah. 
In the Hebrew language, that means, what is it? In Italian, in the Italian language, is kefa. And what's this? What is it? Jesus was a mystery to those who saw him. Who are you? The manna came at night from heaven. Jesus came to the dark world where sinners were in moral and spiritual darkness, estranged from God. The manna was small. It speaks of humility. Round, it speaks of eternality. White, it speaks of purity. Sweet to the taste like honey. Psalm 34, 8 says that the Messiah would be like honey in your mouth. Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. As a matter of fact, later, Paul would write to Timothy in Timothy 3.16, 1 Timothy, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, received, believed in the world and received up in glory. And so Jesus says in verse 50, this is the bread which came down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. Apparently there's a spiritual sustenance that comes from heaven that still results in death, but there's a spiritual sustenance that comes from heaven that results in life. Well, does eat mean consume? Does eat mean consume Christ in the form of a wafer or a cracker? Is eat a metaphor to believe in such a way, to believe in a saving way in Jesus who rescues the sinner from eternal death? We're going to talk more about that the next time we continue our study. But what does it mean Jesus claims to be the living bread which came down from heaven? We've already said that it can't mean he's exactly like manna because he's superior to manna. And when God gave the gift of manna, people continued to die. But look what Jesus says. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. Now we have the clue. Jesus will use this word six more times in this discourse or in this sermon. He might make a note of it. I will give my flesh. Jesus is in effect making a declaration that the Son of God will give himself a sacrifice for the life of the world. The sacrifice will result in his death. When you ask the question, how will Jesus do it? How will Jesus do it? How will Jesus impart eternal life? He will die. He will die. And in verses 50 and 51, the verbs are in the Greek aorist tense. Now, you may not understand what the Greek aorist tense means, but it signifies a once and for all action. In other words, the sacrifice is once for all. The incarnation is once for all. The sacrifice is once for all. The bread that came down from heaven, katabas, in the aorist tense, from heaven. Again, it's in the aorist tense. He comes down from heaven, not twice, not three times, not seven times, not in the form of Krishna, not in the form of Buddha, not in the form of Muhammad, not in the form of this nut job in New Mexico. Once. For all, never to be incarnated again, never to die again. 
There are several key doctrines presented in the Gospel of John, the deity of Christ, the resurrection of of Jesus Christ. But here what he's talking about is the substitutionary atonement. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices pictured a temporary substitution. The ram caught in the thicket in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham is getting ready to sacrifice his son Isaac, God provides a ram in the thicket. In Exodus 12, he provides the Passover. In Leviticus, he provides the sacrificial system. But Jesus is the permanent substitution. The ram in Genesis 22, temporary. The, 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 The lambs in Exodus 12, temporary. The sacrificial system, temporary. Hebrews 10.4, the writer of Hebrews says, For it wasn't possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Only Jesus could do that. Permanently. Jesus will later say in John chapter 10, verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. For he has made him to be no sin To be sin, who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The testimony of the New Testament. Jesus will die for the world in John 3.16. Jesus will die for his sheep in John 10. Jesus will die for the nation in John 11.50. And Jesus will die for his friends. That's what it says in John 15.12. John will make it personal. Paul will make it personal. Paul makes it personal in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 when he says, Who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the challenge. It's not to intellectually or theologically or even kind of dispassionately acknowledge the facts that Jesus died for the world. He dies for the nation. He dies for the sheep. But he dies for you. Personally and specifically. The men's warehouse have a catchy commercial phrase. They say... Come to the men's warehouse. You'll like the way you look. Several decades ago, the Ford Motor Company had a kind of a weird commercial, a similar commercial. The Ford Company said, the closer you look, the better we look. The closer we look at the critics, the better Jesus looks. And the closer we look at Jesus, the better he looks. And when you look at Jesus very, very closely, you'll discover something. That he's drawing you. He's asking you to love him and embrace him. So what's your part in salvation? You hear the voice of God and when God draws you. When you feel that pull, when you feel that tug of God's spirit, don't resist. Learn about the revelation of Jesus in the scriptures. Learn about God. Come to Christ. And the reasons are clearly stated in verse 46. No man has seen God. Christ alone is of God. Christ alone has seen God. So how do you deal with the critics? My advice, listen to their arguments. 
Don't be afraid to reason. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Come, let us reason together. The Bible gives us permission to use our brains. We can think, it says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. In 1 John chapter 4, we're told to test the spirits. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20, 21, we're told to test everything. The Bible has great answers. For those prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope that's within you. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul said, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Don't give up. I know it's hard to share your faith. And sometimes it's hard to share about Jesus. And sometimes it's hard to learn the arguments for the existence of God and the reality of Christ and the reality of his claims and the integrity and the reliability of the scripture. But the more you know, the more comfort you'll be able to impart. And the next time that person starts yelling and screaming at you, shut up. Don't talk to me about Jesus. No, the Bible. La, 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 Bible. Who cares? They're so close. They're so close. Continue to pray for your mom. Continue to pray for your dad. Continue to pray for your family and your friends. Pray for opportunity to love them. And to tell them about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord we know again no one comes to you. Unless they're drawn. Dragged. By the Father. Lord we know that some come kicking and screaming. They're reluctantly being dragged away from this world. It's darkness and sin. Lord, I know that there are people who want to hold on to their independence and pride. They want to hold on to their sin. And Lord, I know where that will lead them. To an impossible circumstance. To a dark place. And to further emptiness. Lord, I pray that they would come to you. That, Lord, as you draw them and as the Son instructs them and as the Spirit convicts them that you would do that work that only you can do. And, Lord, I pray that they would receive you. And that they would cry out to you. That they would turn from their sin and that they would believe the claims of Christ. And that they would experience joy and freedom and forgiveness. And hope. And most of all, eternal life. Is that you? Drawing? Do you need to come to Christ? Don't resist Him. Submit to Him. Pray to Him. Cry out to Him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.